this worthy message series. And uh, here's what I'd like you to do. I kind of want to make this a practice that we do, a part of our culture. Would we, could we stand as we read uh, God's word this morning again? And I just, uh, this isn't going to be on the screen uh, this morning. If you have your Bible, you can uh, grab it, but we're going to read from uh, chapter 2. I just want you to listen, and I want you to hear this, okay? These are the verses that we're going to um, kind of set our hearts to this morning. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. As shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful that you are here in this place this morning. You are present. Um, and Lord, Lord, we just invite you now to, to speak deeply, to move deeply. Lord, I I just have a belief that when we come together in your name, under your house, Lord, that uh, when we seek you, God, we should walk away different. So rearrange our hearts, God. Speak directly to us this morning. In your mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. You can be seated. So, Matthew, just so you know, I've got a couple videos. This one has audio that's, that's coming up right here. And so... Um, I, to open up today, I want to share, and so you guys can be ready with the lights too for this one, um, I want to share a real life story about a hospital patient's actor who was paid to act out certain symptoms for medical students and what happened when he had a real life-threatening aneurysm. Check this out. There's been a standardized patient program at the UVA Medical School for years. Actors pretend to be patients suffering from different ailments. They would be assigned a condition and then examined by medical students that would try to diagnose their symptoms. They just see a chart and they're told what, potentially what the problem is and they come in and do their exam according to their training. So it helps them and then they get feedback from us. But on the day Jim Malloy was pretending to have an abdominal aortic aneurysm, one of the medical students examining him noticed something wrong. I go in and uh, the story you know, it all seems like it would be an aneurysm, so I go and do the exam, and then I find what seems to be an abdominal aortic aneurysm. At first, Ryan thought he was being tested. He thought I might have been a ringer that was planted in there to test him, but it wasn't. He thought I was a plant <laughs> with, the, with the real situation. If left untreated, these aneurysms can be fatal. I really didn't uh, think anything of it until the supervising doctor told me that 
they had discovered something. So and then I was concerned that Ryan found, uh, uh, felt an aneurysm, he thought. Now Louise and Jim Malloy are crediting Ryan with saving a life. And we spoke with Ryan and I thanked him. And he had the courage to speak up, which is wonderful. Saved my life, yeah. Because of the diagnosis, Jim had stent placement surgery at the UVA Medical Center in August, and now he's doing fine. And it would have been a very different Christmas if it had not been for Ryan and the standardized patient program. <laughs> okay, so, wow, isn't that providential, right? So, if you didn't catch it, I know it's a little hard to hear. So, Jim Malloy, he was hired by the hospital to go in and act like he had an aneurysm, and while he's getting checked by the student doctor, he discovers that he has an aneurysm that could, it's life-threatening, and he goes in, and he has a surgery, and so his, his wife was about to be a widow that day, they were saying. It was, it was to that point, but God intervened and, and saved that man's life. So it's interesting to think that there he is, paid to act out the symptoms of an aneurysm when a student doctor discovers that he has an actual aneurysm, and he was having some aches and pains, but he just thought, you know, it's associated with my age. You know, he says he was over 60. And we know that pain is an indicator, right, of something, something's wrong. But it doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what is wrong. Pain will let you know that something's wrong, but you need a physician to diagnose the cause, right? And so that's what Jim needed. Jim's diagnosis was off. You know, was it a hot dog? I mean, is it, is it just something that's got some rumbly tummies? You know, I, I, need, I need some tums. You know, he'd be a dead man. And so the reality is, is he didn't know what his pain was about, but the medical student that was examining him did, and that diagnosis led him to an operation that was essential. Why? On your notes, because the magnitude of a solution is in proportion with the magnitude of the problem. If you just have a tummy ache, you need some Tums, right? If you just have a tummy ache, you need some Tums. But if an aneurysm expands too quickly, then you're in trouble. And you need a surgeon. And so it's important to get a good diagnosis because the strength of the cure has to match the strength of the disease. Right? You with me? You don't give aspirin to that guy. You get him, you wheel him into surgery, and you do it now. Because he might not make it. So we've got to understand the problem if we're going to appreciate the cure, because the magnitude of the problem is proportionate to the magnitude of the cure. So why bring that all up? Because we're, we know that there's something wrong with the world today. And something unique for people in ministry, spiritual conversations, they come up all the time with people. They, you know, they come up for me. How do they come up? You know, well, they ask what I do for a living. And I've been in ministry my entire adult life. And when I say that, that I'm a pastor, it's either, and it just ends there. Or, you know, we, have, we, have, we start a conversation. And, you know, so what's interesting, whenever we start talking about God or talking about the Bible and I tell people that there's something wrong with the world today, no one's like, are you sure? Because I see clouds of blue and, no, clouds of white and clouds of blue. And I think to myself, <laughs> what a wonderful world. <laughs> you know, nobody says that. Everybody's like, I know, right? 
And, you know, then they start telling me a story of some, some family member who's a mess or, or what social media has done to the young people <laughs> or the wars that don't stop raging or starvation or, or human trafficking or abuse to the most vulnerable of these. And everybody agrees, that's never at a point of debate, that there's something wrong. There's something not right about this. And no one really debates that there's, there's something wrong with you. No one's like, you know, I don't know. I kind of feel, you know, like I'm sinless. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I feel perfect. Yeah. You know, it, no one thinks that. Everybody knows that there's something wrong with them. Everybody's like, I don't know. Maybe I need to lose a little weight or, or gain a little weight or run more or eat better. Or I've got to read a self-help book or I've got to understand my childhood or I've got to get this position. I've got to get that job. I've got to make that much money. And we start trying to find a solution to be the cure because we know that there's a problem. And, and so we're at the point in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 is where we're starting where Paul is going to say, you're feeling some pain because there's a problem. And we need to take that problem to the physician and the physician is going to diagnose you. And no one really likes the diagnosis part, right? It's interesting. Statistically, a number of people know that they should get checked for certain things. You know, when you hit a certain age and you're supposed to go get those physicals. And people put it off. And in surveys, when they get asked why, they say, because I'm afraid of the doctor, what he, what he might say. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you're more afraid of what the doctor's going to say with the possibility that you might have some sort of deathly illness right now. You know, there's something about hearing the diagnosis that scares us. You know, I don't really, if I want to know the problem that's beneath the pain. And, but you have to. You have to. You, you don't heal a broken leg by ignoring it, right? You x-ray it, you take it to a doctor, and he puts his hands on it and heals you, right? And so Paul, Paul well, he doesn't heal you. God heals you. <laughs> he uses, and he uses the doctor in partnership, right? So Paul is going to take us to the problem in the first part of Ephesians 2. And then he's going to lead us to the cure so we can see the implications for our life. And so the problem, I would guess, is, is much worse than many of us would think. <laughs> Welcome to Destiny Foursquare Church, by the way. <laughs> Praise God. So we'll get to the good part. Just wait. So, so, so Paul will start in chapter 2, verse 1, and he's, he says, you were dead. And he used a personal pronoun. He was talking to a group, but he said it very personally. Let me tell you about you. Let's talk about you. This is very personal. You are dead. That's the Bible's diagnosis of us. There's different words for death, and Paul uses in the Greek the word nekros, and the literal translation of that would be corpse. You're a corpse. That's the word he uses. Most of us don't spend a lot of time around a corpse, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but it's, it's, it's instantly surreal, isn't it? You know, because when you're around a corpse, you see all this life potential that should be there. But what strikes you is the oddness of it. You know, that, that chest should be moving. You know, those eyes should be blinking. The hand should be moving. But it's also still. And, and so there's all this potential, but it's not being actualized, and it just feels wrong. And so what's fascinating about this is Paul is trying to talk to us about our spiritual state apart from God. That's what he's doing. And as Paul is searching for metaphor, what's the right way to describe our hearts before God? Paul's mind goes to the morgue. Our hearts are so far from where they're meant to be that when Paul is searching for metaphor, he goes to the grave. And he says, if you keep on reading, verse 1, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespass 
means that there was a line that we weren't meant to cross, and we crossed it. There was a place that we were never meant to be, and that's where we are. Sin is talking about landing in a place where we are, but where we were never meant to be. And so the Bible says that we, as a people, have a beauty about us in the image of God, right? But we've gone places that we were never meant to go, and we've become things that we were never meant to be. And so Paul will say to the Romans, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We're not the glorious things that we should be. All of us have fallen short, and there's something wrong. And so Paul looks at that, and he says it's that we're dead in our trans, trans, trespasses and our sins. Paul's diagnosis of us in our notes is that we're dead. Paul's diagnosis is that we're dead. So going into verse 2, Paul says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked. So we're walking, and the idea there is that death is a realm. It's, it's a sphere that you move around in. And he says, all of us are living in a space. We're walking around in a realm of death and of trespasses and of sin. So then he starts to talk about this realm. And it's interesting. You know, every, every few years, and it seems like with increasing frequency now, some horrible tragedy will happen. And it will be highlighted in the news, some heinous and atrocious, you know, loss of life. And, and what happens every, every few years, it's so significant that the media and, and the culture, they try to look for a cause. You know, how could a person do that thing? How could a human being commit that act? And, and, they, and they start looking for the causation of evil. And, and the thing is, they typically go to one of three places. And as they're looking for a causation of evil, they look externally at societal issues. Well, maybe they had, you know, a home life that was broken. Uh, maybe they were in the wrong crowd. They were around a group of people that influenced them. Or the system has failed them. And so they look at systematic or social or, or external factors. Um, some look at spiritual factors. When something's really dark or really evil, they go, that person had to be under some kind of influence of something mystical. You know, that was so dark you know, chemicals and physiology alone couldn't account for that kind of act. And then some people look internally and say, no, it was that person's decision. You know, that person started getting involved in some dark things online. They started to entertain some dark thoughts, and then it was their decision. You don't need to blame anybody else or any, anything else. That was just their choice. And so something evil happens, and the debate breaks out, and we tend to do that. Well, there's demons in the world. Well, it's society. Uh, well, that person's just, you know, crazy. And typically, when people start that date, it's one of those three things. On those blanks, you can write down it's, it's external, it's internal, or it's spiritual. They tend to think, well, the Bible's obviously going to say spiritual, but what's interesting, the Bible looks at all three and says, yes, there's multiple factors to what's wrong with us. And so Paul will say in verse 2, here's where it is in Scripture, if you want to uh, walk this out with me. You were dead in which you walked following the course of this world. So that's the external element in the, in the brokenness in us. Back in the 1950s, there's a video here, and don't worry, there's no audio, but I, I just have this. There is, there is an experiment uh, that many of you probably read about, have read about. Um, and you can go ahead and start that, Kella. This is the ash conformity experiment. And so have you ever heard of that? It's, it's this, this, it was an experiment designed to show social influence. And it's been repeated in a lot of various ways over the years. And the ash conformity experiment was generally tested on, on college kids. So they bring these guys into the room, and they start asking them questions. The fourth one over in the red hoodie 
Um, he's not in on this, but everybody else in the room has been told to give incorrect answers. And they ask him questions, okay, which line matches up with the other line? And so the first time they ask him the question, everybody gives the right answer. Very obvious and simple questions, right? But then the second time and the third time and the fourth time, everybody else in the room starts giving obviously wrong answers. You know, they, they'll say, which line is longer? And the, which circle is red? And then everybody, you know, starts picking the short one. Or everybody starts picking the blue one. And what happens? You can watch in the videos, the red person, the, the guy with the red hoodie starts getting a little upset and frustrated. He's like, I know that the answer is not that. But if you, if you watch this, you can, go, you can Google this later, um, the, Ash, the Ash Conformity Experiment. You can see them. They just kind of start folding in their chair. They start like, um, I, I, which, which long is the line one? Or, or which line is the long one? And then they'll, like, they'll give the answer that everybody else is giving you. They'll say, uh, the short one, you know. <laughs> and, and they'll just kind of fold. And do you know what the percentage is of the people that would start giving incorrect answers when they're put in that situation? 75% of applicants would just start giving whatever answer the rest of the crowd was. 75% obviously wrong answers. So which one's red? The blue one. You know? And, and, and so people would just give up. And social pressure was so hard that they folded. And so you could look at the world today and you say, what's wrong with the world? Why am I making this decision? War will happen sometimes in different countries or cultures where there's a whole group of people involved in something horrible, and they'll say, well, I don't know. My whole culture, my whole neighborhood was in on it, and I was just kind of doing what they were doing. And so they instantly realized that what they were doing was wrong, but they're just kind of walking along the course of this world. It's, it's being in the world and being of it is what happens. So next, Paul adds verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air. So there's the spiritual component of walking around in the spirit. So I heard a pastor just recently, he was, he was uh, sharing, I was listening to a podcast, and he was reading a couple books from two different authors who did not believe in God. They weren't spiritual books, they weren't even about spirituality, but by the end of these two books... These secular authors, both of the authors had stepped into the world of believing that there was a God. And what was fascinating was that belief in this benevolent deity is not what opened them up to a belief in the spiritual world. What got both of them on a journey of believing that there is a spiritual world was looking at the darkness in the world. And so both of them, both the men, as they watched what some of their friends got involved in and what their loved ones did or what they themselves got connected with, every time they looked at this world and they had entered into studying the brokenness of humanity, both of them came to a place where they said, there is something that is doing something to these people. There is a power that is influencing my group of friends that are in this dark thing, and there's got to be something that's dehumanizing us that leads us to do these horrible things to each other. How else do you account for it? That's where these two scholars, these two people who are secular authors and they're educated people, not believing in spiritual realms, suddenly came to the belief in God, not because of some benevolence they thought was out there, but because of the darkness that they saw. And so Paul will say, yes, all of us were in that realm because all of us were following the prince of the power of the air. So why is Satan called that? That's who they're referring to there. It, it means that there's, that there's a ruler, a spiritual honcho that runs a sphere. And the, so the air back then was a way of talking about the spiritual matrix that's, that's not the highest of heavenlies where God is, but there's a spiritual world out there that he has influence in. And so it's real and it's damaging, right? 
So scripture talks about that. And the third place, it says, and it's a spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that word sons there is an intimate name. And he says it's working in us. God is calling us to live a certain way and we're not. That we're, we're living our lives in such a way where it doesn't even cross our mind to think about, what does God think about this? You know, does this please him or not? Is this wise? Is this what I was made for? And so we don't even ask those questions. And Kaiser Soze, he says the greatest trick the devil pulled was convincing us that he did not exist. That it's, it's not like you're all of a sudden using a Ouija board every night. It's just that you're in a place where, you know what, I'm just walking in a way where I'm not even thinking about God the way he thinks about the way I'm living my life. So the third one. Paul, Paul does something interesting when he looks at the internal component. So this, that's the third one. There's external, there's spiritual, and then there's internal. And he says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So... That's good preaching. Bad preaching is when you, it's, it's pointing at you. It's your sins, you know, and it's all pointed to the listener. But Paul's like, we're all there. <laughs> he widens the lens and he says, if this offends you, you know, man, I hate this sermon. It's not just about you. And Paul's saying, this is a diagnosis for all of us. We're all in this together. And so he says, all of us live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So what does that mean, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind? Desires of the body is just lust. You know, it's, it's, it's impulsive. We talk about it all the time. You hear it, you hear it in the top ten love songs right, that you can go to right now that are apologizing for cheating. It seems like every other song, right? I'm sorry, baby. And, and, and that kind of thing. So I, I ran across this lyric um, as I was listening to music this week. So just the audio for this one. No, it hurts to see the truth in your face. Circumstances bring you down to your knees. Go on and cry an ocean, but don't drown in it. Enough to put your heart at ease. Look at this second line here on this next phrase. Don't lose your self-esteem. I apologize for being a man. Okay. So, really, okay, Pooh Bear, that's his name, that's the artist's name. <laughs> really, Pooh Bear, that's the way you're going to lay it out for all the rest of us. Just throw all mankind under the bus. But lust is just the impulse. You know, I just did it. I wanted to see it, so I clicked on it. You know, I wanted to try it, so I tried it. I wanted to sleep with them, so I slept with them. I wanted to say something mean, so I said it. I wanted to tell them off, so I told them. And I just did it. And it was an impulse, and I didn't even think about it. What do we say? The devil made me do it. Right? That's the passion of the body. So the passion of the mind, he throws that in there, is because some people are like, well, I'm not impulsive like that. No, for some of us, you thought about it, and you made a decision. There's a line that I know is wrong, but you know what? It's been a hard day, and I'm just going to do it. And, and he's saying that every one of us has rock, walked around in this sphere. There are times that we're led by our passionate impulses, but sometimes we make these willful decisions. And either way... We're all living in this circle, and we are, verse 3, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're wrapped up in this. There's something deeply wrong with us, and he says it's by our nature. And so if you don't believe me, if you don't believe me, I, I grew up with my mom, you know, had a daycare in our house. 
just go to the nursery for a few weeks, right? There is something wrong with those babies. And it doesn't matter. Listen, hear me out. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if a child had known nothing but the love of their father and mother. They have no TV, no violence in their life, no outside influence. It doesn't matter if they've known nothing else by, but, but nurture and love and acceptance. There's going to come a day when they want a toy that somebody else is playing with, and they're going to backhand them across the face. <laughs> There's something evil in there. By our very nature, humanity broke a long time ago. None of us enter into the world pristine and pure. We are all born into brokenness, and it says we're children of wrath. The word wrath comes from the root word there for nostril. When you're really angry, what happens? Your nostrils flare, right? They flare in anger. Did you know that when God sees what's become of the world, the mess that there's a righteous anger? There's a righteous anger. It's how you feel when you witness another kid hurt or injure your kid, moms, right? There's a holy fury, an anger that rises up internally there's, that sometimes maybe you can't even contain, right? You can be a gentle, loving person, a loving mother and a wife, but when somebody hurts your baby, <laughs> hear me roar, Right? And, and all of a sudden, you turn into something terrifying, but it can be a righteous anger, and you can hate something so much because it's so wrong. And it seems like back in the day, the, the wrath of God was something that wasn't so much talked about, but I think today, at least on some level, people are kind of getting on board with it because we can look around at the world and say, something's wrong. You know, something's wrong. Look at this, and the sheer volume, you know, of, of, of human trafficking, the sheer volume of sexual abuse in our country, it's overwhelming. And so imagine, imagine this. Let's do it, let's do it this way. Let's, let's, let's paint a picture. Imagine you had an estate. And uh, you had people and you were caring for them. And, and you entrusted um, this, this land and these people to someone. And you said, take care of my place and take care of my people. And you came back and they had been sexually assaulted, one out of every six of your people. And, you, you kept, and they kept most of the money for their own comfort and then they starved everybody else. You'd be furious. God looks down at the world and he's furious in that way. There's a righteous anger. This is a mess and I'm, and I'm angry because of the chaos. And so that's what he's saying. We are very children of his wrath. God is mad and, and like the rest of mankind, we're in this boat and we're all part of humanity, all dead. And so some of us are going, okay, Pastor Sean, uh, I'm not that bad. You know, you're talking about human atrocities. I'm, I'm not that bad of a guy. Okay, okay. So let's go there. <laughs> so in the Bible, let's go to Jesus. J Jesus raised three people from the dead. A little girl, Jairus' daughter, right, remember? Um, moments after she died. And then there was a young man. And uh, that was, he was being carried out as part of his funeral procession. And Jesus intercepted. And it had been a day or so, and Jesus saw the boy's mom crying. He's like, not today, Satan. And he stopped the funeral, and he's like, be alive. And he raised him up from the dead. And then there's Lazarus, the third one. Lazarus was the last one. And you remember Lazarus, they buried him, and they rolled the stones over. It had been in several days. You know, and when Jesus said, roll the stone away, they interrupted him. Because they were like, uh, Jesus, it's been a minute. You know, he's going to stink. Right? 
decomposition had already set in. And, you know, all three, Jairus' daughter, who had only been dead for minutes, the boy, who had been dead for maybe a day, and Lazarus, who had been dead for three or four days, decomposition had set in, the color was gone, his body had begun to stiffen. The girl, she probably still looked alive, right? It had just been minutes. They looked very different, but the common denominator was they were dead. One may look more dead than the other one, but one's not more dead than the other one. And so they're all dead. So the question is, how dead do you look? <laughs> and so we tend to go, well, I'm not that guy. That guy has been in the grave for like three days. But all of us are a mess. <laughs> and he might be further along in the mess. I mean, he might be running laps around that sphere or that realm. But all of us are dead. And all of us are in the same boat, all alike under judgment. And then verse 4, here we go. But God. Here's the good part. Interestingly, this is where the sentence just starts in the original language. There, this is all one sentence, but we haven't even got to the subject of the sentence yet, and that's God. <laughs> so it's, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. So that's the sentence, and the simple sentence, if you want to condense it and put on your notes, God made us alive. God made us alive. And so that we were buried, and we couldn't get out, and he dove in, and he got us. And so I'm old enough. Here's another video. There's no audio here. But I'm old enough to remember baby Jessica. Remember when she fell down the well? Anybody else old enough to remember that? Um, so if, if you don't remember, there's this little girl. Her name was Jessica. And she was playing in the backyard, and there was this little tube that she sees. And she says, what's in this tube? Ah, darkness. And she falls. She falls into this tube, and the whole world fixated on this tube in the backyard where this little girl fell. If I remember right, she was down there like 58 hours, something like that. And this is the local news story that was covering it. We were all watching it. And so what did they do? What happened is the whole world, the whole community um, came together to dig a hole. And they ripped up earth. They, they moved heaven and earth to rescue this baby. And all of us cheered and all of us celebrated. And when she comes out, you know, like, Jessica, Jessica, you did it, right? No. Jessica fell down the hole. But who were we celebrating? We were celebrating those men and women who would work until their hands just ripped apart and they fell in exhaustion. But, but they would not stop until they set that prisoner free. And so we celebrated those guys who were there that dug in that dirt and rescued her and got her out. So they did it. And I, and I wish I was one of y'all, but I celebrate you. It's pretty awesome. It's amazing that you went diving in together and you set her free. 58 hours, and they got in, and they set her free. So we saw that whole story play out again just recently with the soccer team boys, right, and the coaches that were stuck in the caves in Thailand. I mean, we, I mean, we sent the best of the best in the world, the best minds. The world stopped, and then the world celebrated, you know, um, the rescue. So that's why we worship. That's why we worship. We were dead. We were trapped. And what would you do if there were people that had done this? And, and you were those people, you know, owning that estate. You know, and people had used your money and your power and your influence to hurt people. You would probably not say, I love them. But God does. 
Do you see that? That's what God said. Is it because we deserve it? No. Because of him. Not something that he saw in us. It was something in himself that says, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us to make us alive. You know, I, I love that last week, if you're with us, Paul was praying that we would understand his power, his mag- the magnificence of his power, the megathos, um, the above and beyond power that, that raised Jesus from the dead. And now, this is what he's saying on the flip side, I hope you understand the above and beyond love of God. That he loved you so much that while we were walking away, that while we were blowing him off, while we as a culture were careening into the dark, he came running in to get us. And he grabbed us and he dove into the depths and he made us alive, not just because of his great power, but because of his great love. And and he, verse 5, says, made us alive together with Christ It says, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the the, the verbs that Paul is using here, that he made alive, that he raised us, um, that he seated us. When he said that, he used this this prefix, sin, S-Y-N, that he stuck on at the beginning. And it says that he has raised us up with him and he seated us with him and he's made us alive with him. And he's trying to show us last week... God is so powerful. And that when Jesus was buried in the grave, God made him alive. And he raised him from the dead. And God seated him above all powers. And now, here he's saying, God is so loving that when Christ raised, you raised with him. And when Christ is seated, guess what? You're seated with him. And that you are part of what he's a part of. And so here's here's the thing, if you want to write it on your notes, God's great power raised Jesus from the dead, and his great love linked you to that story. So the good news of this section is that Christ became a human being, and he went where humanity went, but he was sinless, and he was spotless, the only perfect human. And so God says he's not staying staying dead, he's going to rise. And what the text is saying is that God is in the business of saying that you were dead But now, you're in him, and where he goes, you go. You are raised from the dead. Where he goes, you go. Because here's the good news of the gospel. God did not die to make bad people good. Jesus died to make dead people alive. You get that this morning? That's what salvation is. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. And when that dawns on us, that's when we become celebrators. That's when we become worshipers. That God is in the business of raising us to life. He's doing something great and powerful in us to make us something more than we are. So, if you feel like, I know there's something wrong with me. You know, I, I, I know there's something broken. And maybe today you're hearing this and you're like, well, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> yes, it is. But it's also way greater than you can ever dream. <laughs> because we're not here trying to turn over a new leaf. That's not what Christianity is. We're here celebrating a king who came to get us. Celebrating a father who adopted us, chapter 1. Celebrating Jesus who raised us with him and seated us with him and gave us a new name, right? That we're his child forever. 
So why did he do it? Verse 7, it says, So that in the coming ages he might show the measurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I love it. What's the purpose? So that, that in the coming ages, every single age that is to come over and over again, he might show us the vast riches of his kindness towards us. That we are his trophy. We are the spokespersons of his grace. <laughs> People... People love to be spokespersons of things, right? We love to be the after picture. You know, you know what I mean? We, we love to be ambassadors, ambassadors of a thing that works. And so CrossFit is a great example. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? There's, there's no such thing as being involved in CrossFit without talking about CrossFit, right? And so, I mean, it, it, isn't it a thing? It's like the first rule of CrossFit is that you got to talk about CrossFit. <laughs> I, I haven't done it, but I'm assuming that's the rule. And so... What's that about? It's that people knew they needed to work out in a community that's coming after them. And then what happened? They suddenly realized, wow, look at my thighs. <laughs> look at my neck. <laughs> you know, they, they see the workouts as having impact in their body. And I like the changes it's make. And I, and it, I like my energy level. And I like the community. And I like what it's done to me. And so I talk about it. And, it, and, and I talk about it. I'm not ashamed to be a spokesperson for CrossFit because I'm not ashamed to be a declarer of it. Stand me up on the mountain and let me sing of the glories of CrossFit and what it can do for you, you know, if you only come with us and sweat until you vomit. <laughs> People love doing it. People love doing it, right? It's like Whole30. Let's go on another page. People talk about it, whether you want them to or not, right? Okay, I see you. You know, I, I used to eat like that, you know. <laughs> I used to make those decisions, and Cheez-Its were killing me too, you know. And, and, and so I can clearly see, like, they're, they're, they're doing for you, right? And what do I do? So I, I quit milk, and I quit cheese, and I quit bread, and I quit happiness and fulfillment, and, and I quit all those things. And then what happened? Suddenly fruit tasted better. And, and, and I could see better, and I could hear things from miles away, and I just became a different level of human. And, and you know, and, and so we love being the display of the glory of a thing, right? And so I'm part of this group, you know, I... I look at me, let me testify to the glory of the power of this thing. I'm part of this program. Let me testify to you the wonders of this program and what it's done for me. And what God is saying here is that we get a chance to testify to the glory of something. And it's not a thing. But it's a person. It's acknowledgement that I'm beautiful in the image of God. But I was broken. And he healed me. And I was dead and he made me alive. Jim Malloy, the guy at the beginning, the actor, when he woke up from the surgery, he didn't say, well, it's a good thing that I drove myself to the medical center today. No. He looked at those surgeons. He looked at that medical student that diagnosed him, and he said, thank you for saving me. There's a man by the name of Patrick Carnes who's a leading voice on sex addiction in the country today. And Patrick Carnes is not just the founder and CEO of SAA, Sex Addicts Anonymous. He was, and is, if you use their language, a sex addict. He was abused as a kid. 
he was a victim of dark things, and then he became an abuser. He became somebody that just lived in darkness until it dawned on him. As he was reading Alcohol Anonymous's 12 Steps, he said, I, I, I admit that I'm powerless. I can't break these chains. I can't do it. And there's someone more powerful than me, and I surrender to him. And so when that dawned on him that I don't have to live in guilt anymore and I, I don't have to keep trying to get myself out and failing and then living in the hopelessness that drives me back into the addiction, he says, I can throw up empty, undeserving hands and say, would you save somebody even like me? And as he threw out empty hands to God, he entered a process of healing where God took a former perpetrator and made him a healer took a former victim and made him a rescuer. That's a picture of transformation. So when he stands up, he's not proud. Look at me. I did it. You can do it too. He says, you know what? Look at me. I was broken. But God saved even me. God rescued even me. Like the prodigal son, even when I was a long, long way off, God ran from me. That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That you can celebrate a God who came for you, and you get to be the display then of his immeasurable kindness. In verse 8, it says, by grace, the kindness of God that, that you have saved me. It's a done deal. It's in the perfect tense. It means it's completed. It's not you start a path and maybe, you know, one day you'll get God's approval. He says, when you put your faith in Christ who lived for you and he died for you and he raised you, you get knit together with him. So in that moment, you're forgiven and made alive. You're made something new, even today. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So you've been saved, it says, through faith. But on your notes, grace is what saves you. Faith is how we appropriate that grace, but grace is the kindness of God, and that's what saves us. So Spurgeon said, why are we, why are we not saved through love or saved through mercy? Because those are ultimately things that you do. Here's what faith is. Faith is a statement of you doing nothing. Faith is a statement saying somebody has to get me. Somebody has to save me. Somebody has to grab me. That's what faith is. It's the empty hand saying, God, you've got to do it. It's a gift from God. You don't earn grace. If you tried to earn it, it would negate the word gift, right? So that's becoming something new under God. It's a gift from God. Verse 9, it says, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not going to happen that when you die... You will walk into heaven, and God will go, he's here. Guys, he's here. Start the slow clap. He's here, everybody. He's here. She made it, guys. Come on. She made it. I, you, you did it. I made it tough on people. You know, I, I created a way to get to heaven, and I kind of hit it. Uh, but you had to do some study. Uh, you had to do some research, and you kind of, you had, you had to be a little bit more spiritually in tune. But you did it. All these other morons in the room, <laughs> they have no idea. But you, you were bright. 
and you know, you walked early too. And, and then what happened? You started reading those books and you started doing some studying and you started to get it together and you just walked your way right up here. So you earned this, get in here. That's not it. That's not it. That's not how it's going to work. We're going to wake up like Jim Malloy after surgery. And we're going to celebrate the one who saved us. It's all about him. That's why people of Jesus should be the humblest people on the planet. You know that, right? An arrogant Christian is the weirdest thing. It's just so bizarre, right? Why? Because we don't celebrate that we figured out anything. If we get insulted and somebody says to us, you know, you're a horrible guy, you know, you, know, you have no heart, what do you think about that? Our response can be back to them, eh, we sing worse in our hymns. You know, I sing that, that I was once a wretch, and by the grace of God, that he would save even a, a wretch like me. Of course, yes, I'm a mess, yet I celebrate a God who came to get me. <laughs> And then it says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in Greek, the word order can change, and we tend to go subject, verb, complement, right? But you can change it around in there, and you can move things in the sentence for emphasis. So in the original language, his is the first word there, for his workmanship we are. For his workmanship, we are. <laughs> That's my Yoda impression. <laughs> Very bad. For his workmanship, we are. You don't earn your way in, and you don't figure it out. So it says his workmanship, he works on us. And that's good news because if he's the one saving, we can't lose. Because you don't get, we don't get it in the first place. He got you. And he doesn't drop his kids, right? And so it's his workmanship that we are. So even if you have a bad day, even if you're feeling, you know, not up to it, and even if you're losing, you don't lose salvation. You have been saved. Why? Because salvation is his work, and you are his workmanship. On your notes. We are his work, and you are his workmanship. And so that changes you. You have a new identity if you're in him. That's a little bit of what we were talking about last week. Michelangelo's David. It's a beautiful statue. One of the most famous statues on the planet. If you know this, Michelangelo's David was carved out of marble. It was from a big piece of stone that had been discarded. It was a stone that had a flaw in it. And so other sculptors passed it by, and they didn't want to work with that piece of marble, so they just threw it in a heap. But Michelangelo went, and he got it, and he said, that's the one I want. And he got this piece of marble, and he began to work on it, and he crafted it into David. And it's fascinating. David, when you look at it, it's majestic, and it's, I'm, I'm told it's unbelievable. I haven't seen it in person. But if you go there, they say you're going to have to wait in line. There's not really that much else in that museum but David. People from all over the country will go there and they'll wait for hours to get in and just see it. See this glorious statue 
that they say looks like a real guy. It's almost like you can expect him to move and speak to you. It's that real. And it's just bizarre that a stone can be so alive. So as I'm looking at this this week, I started thinking to myself, you know, what if stones could think, right? Which they can't. But if they could, it would be the dumbest thing ever for him to be standing there and go, I'm just a discarded stone. I got passed over. I was flawed. Sculptors walked by me. One of them threw me in the trash heap. I'm discarded stone. And I would say, yes, you were. But then the master's hand touched you. And you went from something that was broken to something so precious and alive. And I just waited two hours to come in and see you. So kill that mentality. You were something broken and worthless, but the master put his hands to you, and you've become something glorious. It would also be dumb if he stood there, David, and he said, my name's David. Drink it in. <laughs> I, was dis- I was a discarded stone, and then I climbed out, and I became this. And all those other dumb stones, who are you carved by? It doesn't matter. You're a loser. Look at me. <laughs> I'm David. Hear me war, right? And you would say to them, you are something precious. You are something beautiful. But not because of a thing that you did. It's because the master's hand touched you. Do you see the beauty of the gospel? It, it makes you at the same time humble and confident. Isn't that amazing? So, you know, confident to look at the world and say, I'm something of value. I'm something precious. I have, I've been something broken, but brokenness doesn't define me anymore. I'm something new because the master put his hand on me. And that doesn't make me arrogant. That doesn't make me, you know, you'll figure it out someday. It makes me grateful because it's the master whose hands touched me and made me something new. I was dead, but God made me alive. I was in the depths, but God raised me, and he seated me. So in this age and every age to come, I'm an emblem of the grace of God that would save even me. That's our story. And he says that new identity carries with it a new activity on your notes. A new, that new identity carries with it a new activity. So when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we used to walk in that. But he said, now we are the very workmanship, the masterpiece of God, and he has prepared good works, and I'm going to walk in those. So there's a place for life change, but it comes after God's work, not before it. It's not you were dead, and then you did some good works, and then he made you alive. It's you were dead, and you, didn't, you did nothing at all. He made you alive, and now you have that new identity. You have a new activity. You just accepted the gift. And so my children we have seven of them, did not participate in the moment of their birth. Not in the way that we would like them to, right? They they did not help. They were like, Mom, you push a little, then I'll push a little, and we'll work together. You know, they didn't do that. Their arrival on the planet Earth was an entirely passive experience. 
<laughs> right? And once they were alive, then we began to work on them, and we began to train them. No, you do not yell at your parents. No, you do not hit your sister. Uh, yes, you say please. Yes, we're kind to people. Put that down. Pick that up. Don't hit that. Put that back, right? And we start to train them. Why? To make them our kids? No, because they already are. What the Bible is saying that you are made alive by the grace of God and now you begin to walk as a child of God, not to earn your place in the family, but because you have it. We were dead and he made us alive and with that new identity carries new activity. I walk as who he made me to be. And so when you're single, you can live as a single guy. When you get married, new identity. I'm a husband. And that new identity carries new activities, right? And so, which involves some no's. To, a married, to be a married guy and to live like a single guy, it's not good, right? So there's a whole new way for me to live. I don't, I don't live that way anymore. And it's inappropriate for me to be married to Deanna and date other women. That's not okay. <laughs> I left that behind, right? Because I entered into a new activity and a new covenant. A new identity brings new activity. And so does that mean that there are old things that I used to do that I don't do anymore? Yeah. Does that mean there are new things that I do that I didn't do before? Yeah. It's a shift in lifestyle, but totally worth it because I've got a new identity because I'm her. So there's this whole new world. And so if you've been touched by the grace of Jesus, you'll live a new life. It changes the way you talk. It changes the way that you treat people. It changes the way you live. It changes your decisions. And it's the, again, it's the weirdest thing on the planet is somebody has this new identity and then that lives in an old activity. It's bizarre. If someone does not know the grace of God in Jesus and then lives like they don't know the grace of God in Jesus, it's not a surprise. You know, for me, again, sometimes it's better not to tell people what I do for a living because I just want people to be who they really are. And sometimes, again, when you say pastor, people start acting all weird. And I've been around people, you know, I, I just think of Deanna. She's, she's at this, uh, this wedding of one of her good friends this weekend. I've been at a wedding, you know, where, where um, before where these guys were saying just some of the craziest, you know, filthiest stuff, you know, sailor stuff and and the most inappropriate stuff and then one of their wives comes up afterwards and says I'm so sorry my husband didn't know what she did for a living I am so sorry I mean I can't promise you know that that would have made him PG but at least it would have made him R you know <laughs> I'm so sorry I am mortified and I'm like my response to that is I'm fine you know what I wouldn't say to her is, you know, he's lost. He's just fulfilling the job description, right? You know, he's just being somebody that's apart from the grace of God, and I'm not expecting him to clean up because of me. That's not my story, and that's not, this, that's not the story we're looking for at him. I want the grace of God to touch him because, you know, when the grace of God touches you, that's when you become something new. Not to, not to get in, but because you already are. And so you don't have to earn the right to be family because you've already been adopted. And so, you know, if I'm in him, it changes the way I spend my money. It changes the way I talk to people. It changes the way I treat women and treat men. It changes the way I see my life and my career. The weirdest thing is to be his and act like I'm not. It's bizarre. 
And so it's not a category that makes sense. I've been touched by the master, and I have dignity because of that. You don't need to be ashamed of your past anymore. You know that? If you're in Jesus, all of us have a broken past. Every single one of us, remember, is in that mess. Look at the first family in the Bible. You had Adam and Eve and the two sons, and one killed the other. That's a crazy, messed up family. That's bad, and that's our family. That's all of us. And if you're like, well, I've got a weird family, we all do. (laughs) And the world is a mess, and so are you, and so am I. But the grace of God, but God, it says, verse 4, but the grace of God has touched those who are in Jesus, and you can have a new identity today. And you can be forgiven, and you can have life, and you can be his, and then you can walk out into the day knowing I have a new identity, not because I earned it, but because the master's hand touched me. And that means I have a new activity. So I can be free to bring grace and kindness to you then. So let me tell you about the love of God that would save even me. That's our story. That's our story. And he's worthy of celebrating. Why? Because we were dead, but God made us alive. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, so full of grace and mercy, your love is such an over-the-top love. God, you created us, you fashioned, you formed us for a great purpose. So Lord, let us see your great love and let us act accordingly. Lord, you gave us a new identity. So, Lord, let us live in the new activity that you've called us to. If you're here this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never asked him into your heart, you can have a new identity this morning. And then you can walk in the new activity that he's called for you. He's, He's fashioned for you. He's called you by name. And there's, there's, there's no accident that you're here this morning. So if that's you, without embarrassing anybody, would you just raise your hand so I can see and so we can agree with you? Is there anybody here in this place this morning that would say yes to Jesus for the first time? Amen. Let's stand, church. So, Father God, we just respond to your word this morning. Help us to be doers of your word, not just listeners. God, you've given us a new identity. Now let's walk out in that new activity. (laughs) God, we have so much. We have a story to tell of your grace. Your grace that saved us. We were in a mess. We were broken. We were dead like a corpse. But you came and you made us alive. Let our lives be a response to that this morning. So as we go, we go as sent ones. We go, we go as ones that have been called by your name, as sent ones, sons and daughters. And we are carriers of your name. We take you with us. In the power of the Holy Spirit, God, use us. Open up doors. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. And amen. 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 Praise God. Thank you so much for being here this morning.
we have a prayer team that would love to pray with you if you have any prayer needs. So, um, for the rest of us, go out and give them heaven.